personally wanted to make cycling cool, you know, because I loved it so much and having grown up as a surfer and a skater and looked up to surf and skate industry and pros and people out there, I wanted that to be this, why can't cycling be cool like that was when I was a kid? Once Ollie put all that into a mood board, what we've been discussing, I was like, this is it. This is, this is like bringing surf, skate, streetwear to cycling. From Escape Collective, this is Overnight Success, the podcast about the entrepreneurs, the personalities, and the passionate people who make up the sport of cycling and the stories behind the icons they've built. Over the past decade, MAP has risen to being one of the most successful and highly regarded apparel brands in the cycling industry. Born in the age of Instagram brands in 2014, there was an explosion of these micro-brands with a design-led ethos popping up all over the place. Cycling apparel was going through a big change at this time. People were loving untraditional and playful kits and were becoming almost a fashion statement just as much as they were a technical product. The barrier to entry for apparel was getting fairly low at this time as custom kit was accessible to almost anybody. And social media was a new way of gaining a following and building a brand. I've known the co-founders of MAP, Jared Smith, and Ollie Cousins since before the inception of the brand. Since the early days, we've done many kit collaborations together, and I've just grown enormous respect and admiration for what they've built. The funny thing is, is that while all of us reside in the city of Melbourne, Australia, and we see each other from time to time, I actually don't know their founding story in detail. So this one has been on my list for a long time now, and I'm glad I finally got the chance to sit down with Jared and Ollie to share their remarkable journey. I do know a high level of where you guys were before MAP, but maybe just start with you, Jared. Tell me a little bit about uh, what you were doing before. Yeah, man, it's a bit of a mixed bag with me because... um as a young kid, I left school quite early and I became a plumber, an apprentice plumber and did my apprenticeship. And after I did that, for a while, I started a business in plumbing, which probably a lot of people don't know about. I had about 16 staff and I built that up and um, I wasn't satisfied with just doing that in my life and pursued a career with beach volleyball and I thought I could get to the Olympics and that sort of led to cycling. I didn't know that. Um, with a bit of, yeah, I know, not many. <laughs> So, yeah, in the late 90s, I was playing beach volleyball and um, did that in the USA as well and was using mountain bike as a bit of uh, cross-training. And I really got right into mountain biking and racing and um, and that sort of led to early 2000 where I switched the mountain bike for road bike and I was had to stop beach volleyball because I had a shoulder injury. And at the same time, I wanted to become a builder, so I'd started a – the process in becoming a builder. So I had to go back to school and study up on building and shut down the plumbing company and just focused on being a builder. And at the same time as the beach volleyball, I became a model. So early 2000s, I was doing building, modeling and beach volleyball and cycling. So eventually the beach volleyball took a break because of injuries and ramped up the cycling. And with the modeling, I became like quite um, busy doing a lot of in-house modeling as well as the photo shoots and all that sort of stuff so that's from 2000 early on I got to meet 
a lot of the brands um, in Melbourne and I was lucky enough to be able to go to Germany and model there for a year and I came back and spent some time in New York and LA as well. So I was quite um, international, but it was all before the internet really. And so it was a lot of old school modeling. <laughs> How did you get into modeling? Like what was that by mistake? Was someone? Well, sort of. It was through beach volleyball and being sponsored. And then they sort of encouraged me to do some photo shoots and they actually um, brought me in house as well. That was Mossimo. And that's actually how I met Ollie, like in the very early 2000s. Okay. Um, he'd started his career. So I had this blended sort of work. I was building, building a company within building my own business. And then I'd fallen in love with cycling. And I realized that I could start racing on in the crits and that side of things. I started racing for a small team and met yourself mm-hmm. <laughs> and we we're, you know, in the same rivals. sort of environment. In, yeah. Rivals in Melbourne building out these cycling teams. And because I was working in the um, fashion industry at the same time in house with a lot of these brands, I was learning about building the brands and um, working with the designers, the pattern makers. And because I had a building background, I was very interested in pattern making so I actually was almost going to study it, but I sort of learned it myself. And then I learned a lot about garments and the technology of how to make them fit better. And it was like probably working 80 hours a week. And I got to the building company to a stage where I could just turn up in the morning and the check-in on the site and the, the jobs would take care of themselves. And then I'd go off to the modeling jobs and, you know, work with the likes of Ollie and all these designers around Melbourne. Building up the bike team at the same time, I was started manufacturing the gear for the team, designing it with a graphic designer, then we were manufacturing in Italy, and I wanted the best gear for the cycling team. So, and having met a lot of the pros that came to Melbourne to train in their off-season or ride with us, um, we really got to learn about, you know, building out the best kit for a pro team, and that's what I wanted for our local team. Mm. That's kind of all blurred in like to 16 years. I yeah, think. well, I, it's funny because I, I do remember distinctly now, and it was a bit of foreshadowing, and I didn't see it at the time, but like, we, you know, we'd be sitting at Cafe Racer and there's little side conversations going on, and you'd be like, yeah, the length of these nicks are just, you know, a little too short, <laughs> or the socks aren't high enough, or whatever. And you were just like picking apart, it was invert racing, that was what it was called. That's right, right. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, and it was a good looking kit. And um, I just I just remember now looking back, you were picking apart, you know, the new kit <laughs> and where how it fit and everything. Ollie, maybe what, what's what's your background leading up to when you met Jared? Yeah, I um, took a slightly different path. I was always, uh, I mean, my my passion, my dream was to go and work in the surf industry. I was a big sort of, um, I guess, passionate surfer, not 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 elite by any means, but just was something I loved doing. And when I left school, I sort of bounced around a little bit without sort of realizing what I wanted to do. Um, I came across a fashion design course down in Geelong. So for me, it was like, you know, I think this is this could be a pathway here. A, I can live down the coast and surf, you know, live in Torquay or Anglesey. And then um, B, I think it would lead to working at one of the, the surf companies based down there as well. So I always sort of dreamed of working at, say, Quicksilver or Billabong or Rip Curl, you know, because they, they had offices down in Torquay. Yeah. Um, but it was a couple of years course. It was, it was good. It was really practical. It was sort of the focus was on sewing, pattern making, um, you know, garment construction, that kind of thing. So towards the end of that, 
um, there was a span I sort of thrown in the works because I got offered a job at Globe, which was based in Melbourne. Um, and Globe's a great company. They've, you know, they're sort of probably equally in surf and skate. They do footwear, but they also license a number of brands. Um, so at the time, they probably had 25 or 30 brands under their umbrella. So it became, you know, within Melbourne, it was a real sort of um, proving ground for designers coming out of college or uni or TAFE at that, at, at that point. So for me, I sort of thought this was too good an opportunity to, to not take up. But it meant I had to move back to Melbourne, you know, and it meant I wasn't going to be surfing as much. And I kind of had to wrap my head around that, you know, which I did. But I just sort of thought, look, I've done the course um, the intention of the course was to get, a, you know, a foot in the door, at, you know, a company that I was, you know, passionate about and in, in, in an industry that I wanted to work in. So I thought, look, I'll just, I'll just, you know, take, take the plunge and jump in. Um, and it was great. You know, I worked, I started as a real junior in production, you know, that was my foot in the door. So, um, and then over the sort of coming years, worked my way into design and worked on various brands and then ultimately, I was the head designer for Stussy, which was a brand I'd always admired. Um, and that was licensed from the US Stussy. So Australia was one of the only regions in the world that had a license to produce and design product locally. Okay. Um, and I did that for a couple of years. And then um, there was an opportunity up in Sydney to work for Mambo, which was, you know, an iconic surfwear brand back in the day in the 90s and early 2000s. So I uh, moved up there and experienced that and, you know, obviously, um Sydney has great surf. That was the attraction for me. I could live in the city. I could surf. You know, I could work. And um, and then I did that probably two and a half years. And I got a call from uh, Globe again, and they had a plan to launch their apparel program under the Globe banner. You know, previously they'd been primarily footwear. So I sort of thought, look, this is a pretty good opportunity because um, you know, I can um come back and work through this process of of launching a collection, launching a category for this brand that I'd you know worked for previously. So I thought that was a great responsibility, and it was something that ultimately taught me a lot about um, you know, I guess building a brand, bringing it to market. Um, you know, it was quite a, a generalist role. You know, I wouldn't describe myself as a you know. Um, fashion designer. I'll probably describe my, myself as a as a a brand manager, a product designer, you know, marketer. You know, it was a very sort of um, I guess overarching position. You know, which sort of turned me into quite a generalist in in that sense. But great experience, and it was something that um, you know, I, I ended up spending twelve years at Globe. Um, you know, through my career, um, and it really sort of set me up, I think, to kind of take that next step. But that is where I met Jared. You know, he would, uh, he was our in-house model. So we would, you know, I think he would come in a couple of times a week. Um, you know, we'd sit there for a couple of hours each session, fitting all of our collections on him. And it just through that kind of period, we just became great mates. And I think we'd just, you know, talk about whatever each of us is doing at that time. He was cycling. And for me, that was, and for all of us at Globe, that was really foreign, you know, like he would, roll in at 11 o'clock and fresh off the bike with his shaved legs and looking nice and tanned. And we were just like, you know, it was, it was, it was, you know, pretty foreign at that point. That would have been probably, I don't know, 2010, 2029, 2020, 2011, you know, that kind of era. And I definitely wasn't cycling at that point. You know, I think I probably um, jumped into it. Um, I mean, Jared was hassling me to, to get into it, but for me, it was just like, nah, nah, nah. And, um, I think I started as a commuter, you know, eventually just bought a, a bike and, you know, because I wasn't getting down the coast and what have you. For me, it was a fitness thing that got me into it. And then eventually, you know, Jared's like, well, come and join our team. We've got I've got this team. And I'm like, I can't join a team. I've never really even, you know, ridden a road bike. But he set me up with one of the team bikes. He gave me a big bag of his invert racing kit. 
Um, and that kind of opened the doorway for me to kind of explore this new sport that I was becoming pretty infatuated with, you know, and I, I think probably within six or eight months, I was down at St Kilda, you know, on Sundays or, you know, racing the crits and, and just became pretty obsessed with it, you know, and that was probably the start of our journey, you know, um, between Jared and I sort of talking about kit, talking about what's out in the market, talking about what we liked and, you know, what we didn't like. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, I think we probably, I mean, I think we knew each other that whole period that I was at Globe, you know, so we had a really sort of quite a long, um, friendship in that, in that sense. So, yeah. Wow. So I've got a bit of an embarrassing story that I feel a bit ashamed of, (laughs) and I don't even know if you guys remember it or not. Probably not. It was September 7th, 2014 and cycling tips had just finished running this pretty vibrant, you know, short, sharp two up hill climb race at, uh, Grand Fondo, Amy's Grand Fondo. And I was heavily distracted at the time. All this stuff was going on in that. And then you guys just sort of came up to me and, you know, started uh, tell me about this new brand you created map and you gave me a new set of socks to try out. And I totally blew you guys off. I mean, I am so sorry, but, and I felt horrible. I was, I was just very distracted. Lots was going on and it just, it wasn't the best time for me, but you wouldn't have known that. And I, I think I said straight after, yeah, 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 I'll check it out. But straight after that. And when I walked away, I'm like, Oh my God, I just, I feel horrible with the way I handled that. So Anyway, um, thinking back at that and how far you guys have come is pretty damn amazing. Where were you at with the conversations between you two and what was leading you up to that point? Because clearly you had a brand direction in mind. What were some of the early conversations and what was the process between you guys to come up to to that point and say, like, we're doing this? I think it was, you know, Jared was pretty happy and proud of his team and wearing race kit you know and that's probably just um i guess a byproduct of him uh, being a cyclist for for so long and that was you know that was the culture and you know it was, and that was that was um you know impressive to me but at the same time i guess I probably came at it with quite fresh eyes and, and a pretty novice you know novice cycler you know so, you know cyclist at that point as well so um even though the kit was great, I just didn't feel that comfortable rolling around Melbourne and bunch rides, you know, in, you know, the invert building kit, even though I, you know, loved it and I was proud of it, but it was sort of like, okay, well, I remember just chatting to Jared and I'm like, well, what else is out there? And he's like, oh, there's not much, you know, like there's, there's this brand and that brand. And I was sort of hunting around the, the, you know, the internet, just trying to find things that I liked. Like I came across Cadence at that point, which, you know, I thought was, um, to me, that spoke to me a little bit because it was, you know, graphic design driven. You know, I, I think that was kind of something that I was like, okay, this is kind of cool. Um, but yeah, we just had really quite specific um, uh, taste or vision for what we wanted to wear. And we kind of felt like we couldn't find it out in the market. And I think through those discussions, Jared and I discovered that we were so aligned around what that vision was, you know, and then that kind of, you know, was exciting and that kind of led to more discussions. And then um, ultimately, um, you know, we're sort of looking at the space um, and the way we sort of analysed it, I guess, was you've got, you know, quite a lot of European brands, the traditional European brands are very performance focused and, you know, um, amazing brands. And a lot of them produce their own and manufacture their own products in their own factory. And, you know, that's, that's the sort of the traditional industry. 
And then you had uh, Rafa, you know, who had sort of been operating for 10 years. And um, and we looked at that um, like Rafa had done something different in the space. They'd really focused on the lifestyle of the sport and um, and had quite a progressive um, distribution model. And, you know, I think educated cyclists globally, you know, to purchase online and and follow this brand and, and be loyal to this brand. And for us, that was um, inspiring, you know, I think what what they had built. But at the same time, you know, like coming from the surf industry, we're like, well, why is Rafa the only one doing this? Why is there only one brand playing in this space, you know, in, in that lifestyle channel? Whereas, you know, in surf, there's probably, there was four or five brands at the top, you know, they were always called the, the, the big four or the big five. And it's like, so that I think for us was kind of the penny drop moment where it's like, well, hang on, you know, like we feel, I feel, you know, we can do something special here, you know, and I think um, Rafa kind of paved the way for the industry, I think, in that sense. Um, but we knew we had a different perspective that we wanted to bring, you know, to the table. And I think that was probably born out of our roots in Australia, being based in Melbourne, you know, what we were looking at, what we were inspired by. Um, and that was that was really the defining moment. And, we'd, and I guess, you know, having worked together and known each other for so long and having worked in fashion and worked on product together and building brands, I guess we felt like we were um, we had an advantage or we were sort of prepared to to go into this space and do something. So I think um, once we sort of made that decision, I think we were kind of confident, you know, okay, well, let's, we can do this. We can, we can do this well and we'll do it properly. Like we'll, we'll, we'll set it up well from the beginning. We'll invest in the right things. You know, from the day, day one, we always um, wanted to um, do the best that we could do at every at every stage of building that business, you know, I think that was really the catalyst for us jumping into it. Jared, what are your recollections of um, when you decided we're going to do this? What, uh, what, what was the impetus? Was it all at once we're going to do this or let's, let's just make a Jersey, see how it goes. It was kind of over time. I dabbled with my own brand and like trying to launch, I wanted a brand, like I knew it for maybe 20 years and having worked at say Globe, there was 18 brands and all these other companies I was like, oh, I wanted my own brand, but I thought I was going to be clothing. I actually started that a couple of times, even trademarked the brand and um, thought it might have been a swimwear brand. And it was all right in front of me the whole time. I'd been cycling and um, having done the production for the race team. So I was kind of like, as it was building up to that point where Ollie started getting into cycling with me and we're both I'm like, oh, this is, you know, there was a really good, you know, friendship and like-minded fashion wise like as in we enjoyed surfing um wearing similar clothing and then once ollie was getting into the cycling i was like it was kind of just building up to that moment and as ollie was going through a phase of oh i wanted to start cycling he's tried the team gear like he was saying he felt a bit awkward to wear that because he's coming at it from fresh eyes whereas i'd been doing it for maybe 13 years and i was sick of the team gear I was like, yeah, I want to step out of this and wear what I want to wear. And there's no one out there doing what I want to wear. So that's where we're both in that same moment in time where we'd connected on, we wanted to wear something cool. But I was very focused on performance and having the best. And it had to be made in Italy and all this sort of stuff. And because of that, it was a key thing for me to wear the best quality, you know, it's more comfort on the ride and look pro and all that sort of stuff but wanted it to look fashionable too and we just knew there was no one 
doing it as we wanted to represent ourselves. And then once Ollie put all that into a mood board, what we've been discussing, I was like, this is it. This is this is like bringing surf, skate, streetwear to cycling. And I'm, I'm personally wanted to make cycling cool, you know, because I loved it so much. And having grown up as a surfer and a skater and looked up to surf and skate, industry and pros and people out there I wanted that to be this why can't cycling be cool like that was when I was a kid and I think that's our point of difference with the brand from say Rafa or any other brand it was our perspective of it and I remember saying to Ollie because he was like oh so we'll get this made in China I'm going no no mate it's Italy he goes oh what I love Italy I go yeah like and that was like a bit of a drive as well mm-hmm. to say hey man we're going to Italy to do this <laughs> not to China yeah that and- was um <laughs> well just I think because I'd been conditioned in the surf industry it's very um competitive you know that space was very competitive so you know chinos were always 79.99 and t-shirts were 49.99 and you know so you had this I had that sort of conditioning and I guess 90 to 95% of the product that we made was, was made in China at that, at that point. So, um, you know, it was really refreshing to kind of come out of that headspace and say, well, hang on. Now we just want to strive to build the highest quality product we can build, regardless of where it's made. It just happened to be in Italy at that point because they had the, the infrastructure, the, the experience, you know, a lot of the, the, the top mills are in Italy. So it makes sense to kind of produce there. But yeah, that was for me, that was also a motivator because it was like, wow, this is really liberating because we're just going after the top, you know, like how can we make the best bib short in the world? How can we make the best jersey in the world? You know, and that was kind of our mission from the beginning. Um, and I guess that kind of led us into Italy, as Jared said, but it, I guess he had some experience, of, you know, from the past in making team kits and and had worked with various factories, you know, Mower and Giordana and, you know, other other suppliers so um i guess we just started um investigating what was possible you know so i think that was probably the starting point for us you know before we really dived into design and and creative it was more around okay how can we set this up to to achieve our goals of building you know really high quality performance apparel um, so it was, it was factory interviews. It was, um, you know, sending DHLs back and forth and, and sort of, you know, explaining what we were looking for and, and working through things. And it was just, I think we really sort of started with our material, materials and fits, you know, and that was probably our wheelhouse. It was like, okay, let's just try and achieve what we have in our head as it relates to the quality we, we want to achieve. Um, and that was, I reckon that was probably a nine to 12 month process at that point. Um, you know, and as we sort of started to develop that, I guess, you know, we got more and more confidence in what we were building. So like, you know, dying, you know, we we're keen to wear it. We we're all sort of passionate about it. And uh, that sort of led us into, okay, well, let's start to formalize this a bit and let's start to explore what this brand can look like, you know, and that's um, that's when we sort of jumped into the design phase and, you know, I guess, brand creation phase, as you know. it. When you did the mood board, Ollie, was this something that you... um like, did you do uh, the design or was it just conceptual of uh, throwing things that you like together or how did that look? Pretty much. Yeah, pretty much. Like, I'm not a graphic designer. That's not my skill set. My, my skill set's more in product design. Um, so it was really just trying to kind of um, put our ideas down on paper with um, reference images, you know, and they were mostly from, you know, surf or fashion brands at that point. I don't think it was really anything in there from from the cycling industry per se. But, um, yeah, it was just it was purely mood. You know, it was colour. It was, the you know, the aqua colour that we launched with was a big part of that brand identity. Um, 
It was uh, photography style. It was um, how we'd shoot and represent product on social media. It was all these sort of things that were just kind of rounding out what how how we how we would present the brand to market, really, um, but without really touching on the product itself. It was it was really the essence of the brand, I guess. I, I kind of look back at it and feel you know, and Jared's got it on his phone still. I kind of look back at it and think cringe a little bit but it, it has um you know it does have some still have some cues of, of what that initial kind of mood board was you know but this kind of leads us into um you know taking that mood board or taking that kind of vision and turning it into actual you know brand yeah. logo product design and um that's where sort of misha comes into the fold because um he was a guy he's a graphic designer trade but he also has designed apparel brands and i met him when i left stussy to go to mambo in sydney we hired misha to replace me in that role and that's you know from there pretty much from that day on we sort of you know became friends and remained friends because at the time he produced his own streetwear brand called swipe which was pretty popular in the early 2000s around Melbourne and Sydney. And um, so he was running that. And then, but he, he, you know, Stussy was his favorite brand and this opportunity came up. He wanted to, you know, I guess, explore that experience as well. So, um, so I think <clears throat> from that period, it might've been another eight or nine years until we sort of started concepting map. So we, you know, for me, it was an obvious choice when we were looking at building this brand out, you know, Misha had to sort of be part of that um, process. Mm. So. Misha ran his own creative agency at that point. So he's working on branding and marketing campaigns and, um, you know, retail, point of sale, et cetera, for various labels. Um, and he explored our logo design and our graphic design for the first, you know, couple of collections. Um, and so he's, yeah, he's really been part of, part of the business since, um, before we launched essentially. Yeah. I think, I think within, Two years, maybe. Um, he shut down that business and, and came to work with us full time, and is now actually a partner in, in the business as yeah. well. So he's been with us, you know, for, for, for that whole journey, which is um, which has been amazing. So. Yeah, I, I had actually toyed with getting um, inviting him, him on this episode as well because he is he has been such an integral part. It sounds like. Um, yep. However, to these with three people, these tend to get into four hour long episodes. So, (laughs) but, um, no, I'm glad, I'm glad you acknowledge that. Um, so you have a mood board, you have, um, connections into, you know, Italian manufacturing. Tell me about actually bringing this to life. What products did you guys go to market with? How did you even just get started? I think the first thing like was critical, uh, from day one, I said, we have to have the best bib because without a bib, there's no, brand really because mm-hmm. that's and over the years I'd been watching everyone wear say an ASOS bib and it was like everywhere you go is like ASOS bib, Rafa jersey, ASOS bib, club jersey, yeah. ASOS bib like it was a very and I was like this is critical we had to have the best bib so out of all the products we just worked on that the most in the very beginning and that's probably the blueprint to our bib today still and we worked um, back and forward to the factory until that bib was perfected and the right length. As you mentioned before, I was very fussy about the the lengths and the fits and say the sausage leg, like the the compression. And most importantly, when you get off the bike, how you walk into say a cafe or and then if it's all bagging up and it just looks terrible. So you wanted to be good on the bike and off the bike. So that was our number one sort of product to make sure we had that correct and then 
the rest could flow around it, jerseys, vests, that sort of thing. But mm. then the SOC had this idea of, oh, we could only just make something in Australia. That would be awesome. So we found a local factory in Melbourne at the time to produce our socks. So that sort of rounded out the kit and the story a little bit. You know, it's, it's a Australian brand, Australian sock and, um, rooted in cycling made in the best factories in the world. And as Ollie mentioned, we never sort of set out to say, oh, we're Italian or anything like that. But we we just source the best products from wherever they may be. But I think that was, if we hadn't have perfected that bid from day one, I don't think it would have, you know, it might have taken a few years longer to actually take off. But mm. I think from day one, having like a really good foundation with our bid, it enabled us just to spend time on the, creative and the designs and the graphics and um so i think the first season we launched five jerseys was it five jerseys ollie and a vest and the socks and the bibs and a lot of people think it was a sock brand yeah. because we just because we were funding it ourselves i had been producing those socks in melbourne and i had a box full of socks and said hey why don't i just sell these you know to fund the website build and so for about two months, I was going to a few of the bike shops and saying, hey, are you guys interested in these cool socks? And I gave them the story, brought out the iPad and sort of showed, the, you know, the concept of the brand. And it was a no-brainer, like everyone wanted them straight away. So I was sort of producing socks for, say, two months before the actual website was launched. So that's a funny story where people seem to say, oh, you grew from a sock brand to a kit brand. But that's what I we've thought. actually been spending... Yeah. Well, they just happened to be available at the time before the actual kit had arrived. And Ollie and I had to go to the factory a couple of times just to get the fitting right of the bibs and the jerseys. And um, so that's probably that 12 months of, well, it was actually less. We launched in October. We sort of started in, it was around February because I was married in February that same year. So I had my wedding. I was on my honeymoon and Ollie was sending through designs and concepts and I think we'd come up with a brand name, what must have been in 2013. Tell me about the brand name and, and how that came about. <laughs> there's a, there's a, it's a, it's a, whether it's a good story or not, but um, it was just when I was working in Country Road and the essence of the brand, we wanted something sort of short, bold and strong, like a not a long, tangled you know, sentence or multiple words, but we were sort of thinking, oh, just a really, like a Stussy or Nike or just a really one word sort of powerful sort of word that was in the back of our minds. And we kept flicking a few texts back and forth every now and then. What about this? What about that? Nothing was sort of sticking. I was just a country road working one day as the model there. And this box was just sitting there in front of me and it was M-A-P-P, map. And I was like, that's it, map. And I just text Ollie. <laughs> M dot A double P map like it's and he's like that's it and he was like pumped straight away and we both just got um, really psyched about it because it was like oh it's maps a twist on the word map but it's could derive from Mapai one of the teams in mm. the past that we loved and also a road map to follow if you're on an adventure and it just had so many sort of means you could twist it back to cycling and then M actually meant men's apparel for Country Road. It was just an abbreviation of their menswear department and we were like, oh, well, that's Melbourne. It's Melbourne apparel. That's that's it. So we we got caught up in that and um, we actually presented that to say Misha to start the graphic designs for the logos 
and we had it all presented and I'd registered the business name, M-A-P-P. Oh yeah, it's all registered. Let's go. <laughs> and one day it just hit me and I was like, oh, I've done this before. I did a trademark for my another brand name. I didn't do the trademark for Matt, just the registered business name. I said, oh, Ollie, I think I better check the trademark. He's like, no, no, it's all good. It's all good. So, you know, I just, you know, we've got the business name. I said, no, this is going to be global. This is going to be big. Like we need, I need a double check. And as I went to check, it was taken. We couldn't take P. So we were just, oh, knocked back. And I was like, oh no, like, what are we going to do? So we thought, oh, well, we just have to come up with another name. And we kept coming up with other ideas and nothing was sticking. And I don't know, it just hit me one day because we're sort of looking at it like, oh, Mappa, Mappy, you know, sort of sounded French and Italian. No, we just can't use Map. It doesn't sound right any way we looked at it. And I was just like, oh, just take the P out and put another A. Like the logo was mm-hmm. done. Just said, oh, <laughs> I think I'd, I don't know if I emailed it. I just text all the M-A-P, like nothing else said. He just goes, done, that's it. <laughs> And I'd already checked the trademark too. Like I was like, before I did that, I was quickly checking the trademark on it. And I go, this is, we can get it. And I just remember then Ollie was going back to Misha saying, hey, we've got the, just swap the the P for an A. And he was a bit upset. Misha, I was like, oh no, it really has to be double P. And we're like, no, it doesn't. (laughs) It can't be double P, mate. It has to be double A. And then as he got more into it, he realized, oh no, it's really, the double A's are really good graphically as well we can use them as mountains or part of the branding so that's how i remember it ollie i don't know if you remember i think other- yeah, i think i think you nailed it i think it's yeah, <laughs> spot on but um i guess I, at that point jared's like you know talking about trademarks i'm thinking shit that sounds expensive you know like don't, don't worry about the trademark we, we never know if this brand's going to go anywhere you know that was my whole sort of vibe was just like just don't spend money just to see let's just test the concept and see you know um how we go and I'm, I'm glad he did check it because, um, you know, I think it's so important to have that buttoned up, you know, from the beginning. And I mean, we're still working on trademark issues, um, you know, to, to this day, mm. almost 10 years in. So it's, it is a complex beast, but it's, um, yeah, it's not something that was, you know, really important, you know, back then for sure. So I think that was just the confidence we had or myself and building up Ollie's confidence too. Like, no, this is going to be big, mate. Like this is. To me, it was a no-brainer. This is because I saw Stussy and Globe, how they built it. I'm like, we're no-brainer going to be as big as that easy. Like, wow. You know, just even in Australia, I was just, it didn't seem like it couldn't work hmm. at any point. And then especially once we brought Misha in, we'll get in our ideas on paper. The, the only stress was just the cash flow, like Ollie was saying, like how are we going to pay for that trademark or the website? And, and how were you but, paying for getting the the stock the building the website uh getting the word out there how how did you pay for that at first well initially that was just ollie and i just probably putting 10 grand each might have started with five or two but we just got a bank account or maybe even it was just into me at the start but we got a bank account and we just chipped away at it and um luckily ollie had a little bit saved up he could put in and i kept saying <laughs> oh, I've, come on mate another five and he's like oh Maybe and then um... oh no to be honest like that was coming out of monthly so I didn't have many much savings at right. all and it was like I had my monthly salary I had you know two kids under four at home um, a mortgage um, so I was kind of you know pretty um, pretty stressed yeah. about it all you know and Jared's like come on come on Scotty <laughs> we've got to do this we've got to do that and I'm thinking let's just let's just get it out there let's just get the product out there and get a read before we start tipping money in you know but 
ultimately, I think I think we started with like how I remember it was like five grand each into Jared's account or into this, this shared account, and then it was like as bills came in, you know, over the period, it's like, okay, I've got these bills, let's chip another thousand in this month or another 1500 or another two grand, you know, and that went on for the, probably that sort of incubation period. Um, but it did also, you know, we funded the first production order out of that capital as well, that money. And, um, you know, we didn't order much. We were ordering for like 50 jerseys in each, in each style, you know, or it might've been a hundred bibs and, you know, however many socks and um you know but for us it was still a lot of money i think even even funding our trip to italy to work on the product at the factory was part of that money as well you know that's i guess that shows like how committed we were to getting that product right before it hit the market you know that was a big chunk out of our sort of seed money that if you want to call it that you know so um but yeah that was it and i think you know, I, I just remember thinking, sell those bloody socks because I can't tip any more money in, you know, like, yeah. let's just get it going because, um, you know, we can't, aff- I can't keep, I can't afford to keep doing it. Um, and that's pretty much what happened. I think once the socks sold, we, you know, we all just got a boost of confidence from it because money came in, the stock was on the way, you know, the apparel was on the way from Italy. Um, we had a really good response um, through some of the, you know, select bike shops that we'd showed it to. Um, and I think Jared, I think by the time he came back, you know, from those meetings, he's like, we need to order again. Like we're, we're, we're sold out, you know, yeah, so we'll just order more. He's like, Oh, I can't, we can't fund it. I go, don't worry about it. I'd pretty much had it sold before we had it landed. I'm like, just order more, mate. He's got, Oh, it's just like, okay. Just leave the money to me. Just order more. Just do it. And he's like, Oh shit. And, um, I still got the first check, I think from the first. $500 sock sale. <laughs> this podcast is fully funded by our members at Escape Collective. In fact, all of our content on our website and our podcast network is 100% supported by our members who believe that cycling media should be independent from the sport and industry we cover and that we should exist to serve you rather than live or die by our ability to be a platform for the sole purpose of selling you more stuff. If you enjoy this podcast or any of our other work and believe in our mission of independence, please go to escapecollective.com slash join and become a member today. Thank you for your support. So you're, you're just hustling. You're, you're packing orders. You're going to bike shops. You're also selling Mm -hmm. online. Is that, was that correct? Well, that, that started in October, so that was a great story there too. <laughs> he goes, oh, I've got a trip booked to Bali with the fam and it lined up to literally the, the website was turned on and I wasn't so good with websites. You know, I'd been a builder, not, <laughs> not an IT tech. And I go, oh, so we've turned in the website on on Monday. He's going to be in Bali. I was like, oh, that'll be, that'll be cool. But we weren't expecting like major online craziness but the main thing was i had it in three dealers when we launched in milan at deus in bike gallery and saint cloud because i'd already gone in with the laptop or with my ipad with a real beautiful suit bag had the samples inside presented it to the guys and even the store in milan ollie was with with us together on that one because we were at the factory and all three of them were like oh yeah we want to buy that and it was that was kind of half more than half the production pretty much without even having to go on to the other bike shops where I'd had a list of stores. So we wanted to have a little bit of a balance of say half online, half for some bike shops. So we sort of 
calculated it out that we could sell a bit ourselves and then get it seeded into the best bike shops. And I think from when once the website was turned on, it opened it up to these people overseas because it looked like we'd been around for a while. And because it was in Bike Gallery in St. Cloud, they posted on Instagram. Instagram was just getting popular at the time. Yeah. Within that first month, I was getting emailed from bike shops all around the world. So it wasn't so much the online stuff that was getting out of hand within the first three months. It was this organic traffic through having stocked some good bike shops. The flow-on effect of that just was tenfold. That's what was crazy for the first um, probably 12 months of the business was just managing the um, wholesale side of it because that would be like you know, biggish orders as well. So taking up a lot of the inventory. So trying to manage that we didn't sell out for online, but then online always looked quite sold out because there was kind of creating demand at the same time because we were sold, we'd launch and it sold out in a week online. And you're just constrained by cash flow and is the reality, I, I imagine, mm. eh? Yeah, exactly. That was always our problem was, yeah, always the, the issue was we couldn't just get enough stock really. Mm. Like it was the bibs were always sold out. The key sizes were always sold out. We, you know, the people were complaining and, you know, or we'd launch and, um, you know, sizes would go instantly, that kind of thing. So I, I don't think we ever really, um, I mean, that was, it was years that we had that, that issue. Um, but yeah, for me, it was really interesting within that first period just to see what countries, you know, were, were inquiring. As Jared said, we were having, um, phone calls or emails from Thailand and South Korea and uh, Malaysia and, uh, you know, all of these kind of, you know, Europe, Germany, you know, just, it was just coming out of the, out of, um, the woodwork, which was really interesting to us. So for, from, from day one, we kind of realized that, you know, okay, we have to set this business up to be a global business. You know, I think, I think just by the nature of setting a business up in Australia, you know, I think you, you, you sort of forced to think international mm. quickly. You know, I think, um, in comparison, if you were to set up this business up in the US, there's plenty of large businesses that only operate within that market because yeah. the market's so, so large. So for us, it was, um, it was crazy. We were sort of producing this product in Italy. It was getting shipped to Melbourne and then we we're shipping the wholesale orders back to the UK or Germany or France or, you know, Italy, you know, which was, which was insane. So I guess, um, that was, that put a, an added layer of pressure on because, you know, we sort of thought, okay, well, we have to probably open up a warehouse in Europe. We've got to duplicate our inventory levels. That's going to be pretty taxing on our cash flow, working capital. But um, we did it, you know, and I think that was probably the one of the, the key milestones for us was was uh, establishing um, establishing that distribution hub, basically, which is now in the Netherlands. Um, and that really kind of, um, I guess, allowed the business to grow in a sustainable way. You know, that was that was um, a key moment for us. I think it all sounds like it. It went off really, really strongly from the start, but you guys would have been working your day jobs, I imagine. When did it finally become uh, apparent that you guys had a legit business on your hands and this is not a part-time thing? And when did you guys leave your jobs? Initially, like I'd finished a building project in October and that's lined up perfectly to turn in the site on. 2014? So, 2014. Mm -hmm. And I said, Dolly, you just keep working I'll go full time and this, I just want to see how this can go because I'd already been working for myself and had some money in the bank, just got married, hadn't had a kid yet. But, um, so I was 
very happy to give it 12 months. I, I, you know, I had an end, you know, open-ended, just I'll just go for it and see how long this can last. And I still had some modeling jobs, which was great. So I could do that within an hour or two, get paid pretty well for two hours and then able to, you know, run the business, so to say, so to speak. But that was operationally, you know, all the shipping, all the um, communication. And Ollie was able to coordinate, say, during the nights, talk to the factories, order more products, so, you know, curate them. So so <laughs> with the reality, what that means, like, you know, uh, is you're on the Instagram account and you're packing bags, is that, and, and going to shops, well, is I'll, that is that kind of the know, level at that point? We pretty much split it in the start. Like I just, Ollie was, you know, curating the photo shoots and he had Instagram. I had Facebook. I've still to this day never posted on Instagram because that's one thing. You don't muddy the waters. Like yeah. I didn't want to get in there and start fiddling with Instagram and then Ollie do, oh, I was going to do this or whatever, vice versa. So it was very clear that you do Instagram, order the stock, I'll do X, Y, Z, the finances, the sales, right. operations, customer service, that side of it. And I was happy to do it during the day, whenever, 24-7, just get it done. And we had regular meetings at the pub on Wednesday nights, doing fittings, that sort of thing. And um, I remember saying, Ollie, hey, man, this is really busy. It was December and we put on our first staff. I said, I need help. Like, you don't have to come and do it. I just need someone to pack boxes. You start work. You don't need to be packing and it's that kind of stuff. So we got Dave McLean in and he was our first employee. And also the number one was my mom. She still, she still works with us as really? in admin and that side of things, but she was a bookkeeper. So she'd come in, she'd help me with doing all the invoices for wholesale and take care of admin. And then Dave would come in and start doing packaging and, um, I actually had a mentor as well, Dave Vile, who came from his family, one of the co-founders of Country Road, and he had a brand called Elwood and he sold that. So he was helping me a lot operationally and come over and give me a hand on how to – I needed to get it out of my studio because it was, it was too much going on. I, and then I just had a baby and I was like, this is getting crazy doing it from home, and he helped me get it into the first 3PL. So I think it probably took – 12 months and then Ollie was we really had two staff members we had Shul and Dave and then Ollie had been winding down his job at Globe you can explain that Ollie but um, yeah I mean I I I mean it was it was getting busy like to the point where it was impacting my day job you know and my my home life and (laughs) some relationships (laughs) yeah yeah. but um so it was kind of and i think jared like we were both at the point where it was i wouldn't say it was breaking point but it was like holy shit what have we what have we done here it's really this is stressful you know and um i kind of felt like you know i think we actually even said to each other at that point we either we either go for it or we shut it down because this is not sustainable and again, you know, it's it's a big leap. Even at that point, when we're when we're selling product and we're making profit, you know, it was I mean, it's been profitable from the beginning, but it was still um, to to sort of support both households was still um, a big sort of impact on on the business, you know. So it was we're still wrapping our heads heads around: should we be working at full time? Should we be paying ourselves what we were earning, you know, in our other you know careers, etc. Mm. Ultimately, we did because you know we we're so confident in it, but. 
I think um, I resigned from Globe at that point. But I was so conditioned to working in a company my whole life. Like I'd had this sort of 12, 15 years um, working for someone. I was always very happy doing that. I never really had a yearning to kind of start my own business or manage my own business or launch mm-hmm. a brand. Um, and I remember, you know, just once I resigned, um, I couldn't sit at home. I was I felt guilty that I wasn't in an office. You know, I had this really, it was a really weird feeling. So I ended up sort of um, renting a desk out of my sister and brother-in-law's office there. They run an architecture practice and a, a building company. And um, they put a, a desk and a chair in like a broom closet and I paid them a little bit. Of, you know, I think it was, actually, I think it was free originally, but um, so that was me. I'd sort of roll into this office in North Melbourne and sit in this broom closet by myself and just feel like I'm at work <laughs> again. And that was kind of like a, I think it was almost like a safety blanket for me because it allowed me not to think that I've just walked away from my career and I'm putting everything on on this business. It sort of made me feel like, yeah, I'm just going to the office, doing some work, <laughs> doing some emails, and then I'd, I'd leave it. You know, I'd wait. Sometimes I'd wait till five o'clock, even if I had nothing to do. I'd feel guilty leaving at three. You know, so. I've shaken those um, feelings now, which is good. But that was—I just remember—that was a really odd time of my life where I was just going through a lot of transition. I guess. When when do you feel it started stopped becoming um, like an awkward? And what I mean by awkward is just um, you doing everything, and you started to bring people on to be able to shed responsibilities. Did there, there does there feel like there was a defining time that it became less awkward, or is it still awkward? <laughs> No, I wouldn't say it's awkward at all. I think, um, look, it's it's sort of a that, that feeling is a slow burn over time. Mm. I don't think there was one definitive moment, but um, you know, we even at that point we're like, okay, we need someone to probably do these functions in the business, and we we kind of thought, okay, we could get a junior and sort of train them up, or we could get someone that you know is exceptional at that role, and it's going to have a big impact on the business. And I think at every stage we kind of chose that second option. Mm. Um, we chose to probably pay higher than you probably would imagine a startup would pay. We, we matched salaries to bring people over from, from businesses that, you know, were like, like-minded or structured similar, you know, in a similar way to ours. So I think that probably was something that helped us along the way because it gave us confidence and it gave us, um, yeah, I guess confidence to delegate and, and work with, with, with talented people. So whether that was e-commerce or operations or, Misha coming on board full time. And, mm. um, you know, I think that, you know, pretty quickly we had eight staff in the, in that. So we we're hot desking out of my sister's office and we got to sort of eight staff at that point. Um, and they, they wouldn't give us any, any more desks, you know, so we sort of transitioned into a, a new office down the road. They just happened to own a building that was vacant and we sort of looked at this little building in North Melbourne. Um, which had two levels and we're like, okay, well, we could put an office upstairs and maybe downstairs we'll try a retail shop, you know, like it's um, just going to be sitting there empty. So that was kind of the sort of evolution out of that sort of hot desking phase into, into what was our first, our first office essentially. But, um, you know, I think um, to answer your question, it, it's, yeah, that's probably, it's just over time, I think uh, it's just been building uh, or, or sourcing exceptional talent to kind of join the business. And, and I think that, um, has really allowed Jared and myself now to focus on, on what's most important. And, um, you know, I'm really proud of the team that we've been, been able to, mm. to build, you know, today it's been, um, it's been amazing. It's been an amazing ride. It's been impressive. Um, with real rapid growth, um, also comes like the cash flow issues and, 
the um, little I know about the apparel industry, I do know it's a huge um, upfront design process and, um, and and manufacturing lead times and everything. Did it start occurring to you that taking on investment um, is going to be necessary at some point to continue growing? Or have you been able to fund this all from profits? Um, and if if you did start thinking along those lines, how did you sort of approach that process? Yeah, I think... I- yeah, it, 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 uh, we didn't think about it for years. Like it wasn't really part of our, um, mission, you know. So I think, uh, we, we've funded it, bootstrapped it from, from day one. And, um, each year, every year we've made a profit through, through the business. But, um, but ultimately, um, all of our, um, profits have been retained in the business to fund the, in the, you know, the future growth and, and to build our inventory levels mm-hmm. and things like that. So. I guess, um, and we were just on that ride and it, it definitely was not easy, you know, like it, we had a really great accounting firm that acted as a consultant for us as well, like a business advisor. And, and that was pretty critical to sort of navigate, um, you know, loans from the bank. And, you know, we, um, we had some help from family at various stages as well, lending us money and which was also an added layer of stress. Cause it's like, shit, what if this goes bad and I lose, yeah. you know, so-and-so's money and, but that kind of, I think that that journey um, was about eight years um, of, of funding it ourselves, and then uh, it really just got to the point where you know we're pretty highly leveraged with the banks. We've you know we can't borrow any more money or family or friends. You know um, we couldn't make payroll. You know it was coming up, and it's like oh my god, how are we going to pay the payroll this month? And it's like well, Jared's like oh, I can pull some money down off my mortgage, which you know the house was already signed over to the bank if we were to sort of go under, but. And that was kind of the point where I think we just kind of thought, look, we can, again, go two directions. We can continue to grow this business and, and sort of achieve our vision um, or we can scale it back and just, you know, you can grow organically and let's just keep it, um, you know, slow it down. And, and uh, you know, for us, we, we were so ambitious, like that wasn't really an option. So I guess we kind of started looking, you know, we had, um, I guess, multiple uh, investors over the years um, contacting us and we never really engaged with that sort of idea but I guess we sort of felt this this was the, the right time to do that um, and so we started taking meetings and met with with the whole range of different companies you know and I don't think we ever really felt confident in bringing someone into the business you know that was our big anxiety it was like a, a lot of the I guess you know, the messaging you get from a VC fund or a private equity company is, um, you know, it's all about your growth and what can you do in five years? And then, you know, in five years, we'll, we'll sell an exit and everyone will be happy because you've, you know, five exited or, 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 you know, 10 exited, et cetera. So for us, that was really nerve wracking. It's like, well, why would we bring someone in that's going to change the trajectory of our brand? We don't, we don't even know at this point what mm. we want to do with it in the future, but we're, we're definitely not ready to to give it up. And, and we've got, you know, we really want to sort of build um, a, an enduring brand that we're proud of, you know, that's, you know, something that sort of brings more people into the sport and you know, something that sort of hopefully leaves a net positive impact on, the, you know, on the environment. And um, so I guess, you know, we were kind of really anxious about doing it until we came across um, a private equity company called Pomoja, which, um, you know, was, again, was a cold call from LinkedIn. They approached um, you. They approached us, right. yeah. And um, and then talking to, it, they're a really unique business. It's, you know, privately owned by um, a guy called John McCall McBain. So he owns 100% of the private equity company and he's... Um, 
his mission is to donate 100% of the profits generated from the private equity company are donated to charity. So his missions are university scholarships and climate change causes. Um, so that for us was like, well, hang on, what, why is he doing this? What's, what's the, you know, motivation or how does he set this up? And, and just over time, we got to sort of learn about what his missions are and what his, what his sort of purpose is, what, what he's looking for from investing in a company like Matt. He's a passionate cyclist and skier and adventurer. And, you know, so we sort of got to know him in, in that sense and, and just started to feel comfortable about it. And I think the thing that sort of, uh, ultimately got us over the line was the fact that John said, um, you know, he doesn't want to ever sell good businesses. You know, for him, it's like if you want to pass this business down to your kids, you know, let's do that. Or if you want to, you know, hold on to it for X amount of years, it's up to you guys, you know. So that was kind of really the, the catalyst for us to kind of take it seriously and sort of um, further explore how that relationship could be. That was um, 2020, I think. And, um, you know, everyone knows what happened in 2020, but it was, I think, May or, you know, maybe even the second half of 2020 that that happened. Um, And that, I guess, you know, to answer a previous question, that kind of gave us um, confidence. You know, John was there to give us confidence. We had, um, I guess, investment to kind of help grow the business and and sort of realise our goals and dreams. And, um, and also it gave us, um, the opportunity to bring more experienced people into the business as well. And, you know, some, you know, and that was, uh, I guess, a, a definite catalyst for us to kind of, um, really sort of take it from, from there. So it was, yeah, it was, it was, it was, it was a pretty, um, interesting process to navigate, but ultimately I think we sort of, um, we're very lucky to come across those guys. It sounds like it. I've kind of Googled John McCall McBain and the guy sounds incredible in terms of like what he's accomplished, what his interests are, what his, uh, the philanthropy entails. Um, what, what, what else has he brought to the table? Maybe more personally besides money, like, do you have a pretty close relationship with him or is it quite hands off or? Yeah, I'd say, um, on a day-to-day business. So just to, you know, John's investment is a minority share in our business, but, um, and, and sort of operationally, it's, it's very hands off, but, um, he treats his, uh, businesses as family, really. So, um, you know, we'll, we'll spend a lot of time with him and his family and just, and just getting to know them and, which has been amazing. Um, but yeah, as I said, I think it, like his role really is to kind of give us the confidence to think bigger, you know, and to sort of go after our dreams and realize what that is, regardless of whether it's revenue or creating meaningful, meaningful impact or, you know, um, yeah, he's really there, um, as a sounding board and a mentor for us, which, which has been what we wanted. You know, I I don't ever, I guess we sort of probably didn't think we would want someone that's going to be in the day to day, you know, that's kind of, you know, and at that time you don't really know, you don't really Mm. know what you need. You think you know what you need, but ultimately you don't. And I think, um, we're really comfortable with the sort of level of involvement they've got. And, you know, um, yeah, so it's just, we just feel supported, but not kind of derailed in, in, in any way. So he's very, um, inspiring to be around. So when you do spend time with him, it's, it rubs off on you. And mm-hmm. I think Ollie and I are both motivated, energized people as well. Like think, think big and chase our dreams. And he just sort of gives you that confidence to, really continue it and there's not a minute of a day where he's not busy and then when even when he's with us he's it's booked in he's scheduled i'm flying in jared let's go for a ride he's he's booked his shower he's booked like everything's 
He doesn't miss a minute of his life. And that rubs off on you and that makes us like really invigorated and within the business it's it's um that gives you the confidence to really go after what we really want to do and also a massive thing was de-risking us he really wanted us to not feel because up until that moment that was probably our biggest weakness was this risk feeling of oh man could we lose our house and um i want to make sure everyone's paid and and we were we're profitable and everything was like on paper was going to plan but you always had this underlying risk that geez man we could lose the house and i don't know what the pandemic's doing mm. and not even a war who knows what could happen mm. but he really wanted to de-risk us and feel comfortable to come to work and just shoot for the stars and i think that's what it's enabled us to do yeah, I uh, I have to admit I have a I don't know him, but I look at what he's done, and I have quite the crush on him. <laughs> he's done a lot in his and life. He's Canadian, right? You got to love a Canadian. Captain of the college ice hockey team. My goodness, he had me. He had me right there. But uh, um, in tangible terms, I mean, I I can see from the outside what that investment has enabled you guys to do. I mean, um, maybe can you talk about some of the tangible things that has brought that that investment is brought to life and it's enabled you guys to um, go to market with? Yeah, well, I think, um, as I said, really the people has probably been the the biggest change to the business, being able to sort of, um, you know, recruit uh, the right people for the right role, seniority, you know, brought on a great CFO. We've got, um, you know, some some great talent. I think that the talent for me is the, the, the most important thing that, you know, people are our business really. And, and um and that's probably as i said allowed jared and myself to kind of um focus on what we need to do to 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 um realize our vision you know which has been great the other thing i think from from day 1 we're always inspired to build retail stores and um you know we always looked at saturdays a brand a new york brand called saturdays nyc you know and that was kind of an inspiration for us it was someone that you know Came out in the 2000s um, and kind of disrupted the surf industry by, by um, you know, which at, at that point, the surf industry was pretty much at, um, you know, mass distribution, you know, it was, it was sort of potentially on the way down, you know, to where it is today. And, and Saturdays came out with a really unique premium perspective on, on that space. Opened their first cafe and store in New York, and then grew it from there. And, and we we loved the stores that they built. They opened a number in um, Japan and you know, Tokyo, etc., which we visited. So for us, it was always like, geez, we want to do that for Map. You know, like that that the, the way they uh, approach retail for us was the, the way that we wanted to approach retail. So, I think um, you know, but part of our longer term strategy is to you know we open stores internationally which we're starting to do now and and that's really something we we couldn't have done without without the investment from Pomoja so you spoke just a few minutes ago about how you know your your first employees you you sought out uh, the best and 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 paid them premium and and that has it changed now from you seeking out the best to the best approaching you yeah that has happened for sure i think um you know uh, I think that's a real compliment to the brand we've built, you know, that, that we're attracting talent, you know. I think um, it's hard to recruit um, people with specific experience or cycling experience from Melbourne, I would say, that have worked on on global brands, you know. So I think that 
you know, for the early days, we really just probably tapped our network. It's people that we'd previously worked with in, you know, other brands, whether it be Global Country Road or, or wherever, which was great. But as as you start to grow, you need to bring in specialists, you know, people that are smarter than what we are, that know product better than we are, that, you know, that, that, than we do. So that's kind of, um, that's been a challenge. And I think being able to look globally for that talent has really sort of unlocked, um, unlocked, you know, some, some great talent for us. So we've set up an office in London. Um, we're about to set up a small office in LA. We've got, um, we've sponsored international employees to come out on visas and work with us, which has been an option as well. So apparently it's not too hard to talk a Brit into moving to Australia, you know, so that's, <laughs> um, that's worked in our favor. Um, but yeah, it, it, it we do feel, um, in a privileged space to be able to work with such talented people in our business. Yeah. I know you guys have done a lot uh, to do with sustainability over the years. Um, however, being small, um, the priority isn't telling those stories. And I just want to talk about that because I know you guys have done a lot early, early on before that became um, a thing brands were thinking about. Um, what, are, what are some of the, I guess, uh, what's your original thinking from starting the brand in terms of sustainability? And what did you want to kind of not achieve, but um, how did you want to lead with that? And what are some of the things you guys have done in the 10 years that you've been around? Yeah, I think, you know, probably from our previous careers, um, you know, the surf industry was quite an early adopter of some of those sustainability sustainability policies. And, um, you know, our, our mission was always to protect the places that we ride. You know, we, we are, we are out, in nature we are out on the roads and you know it's something we wanted to bake into the fabric of the brand i think just by nature of producing with the high quality fabric mills that we work with and the supplier chain that we work with um it was it was interesting to us how advanced they are already on 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 some of those key sustainability practices um and through that process and working with these mills we learned about the blue sign partner system um, and we really try, uh, we've, 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 we are now the first cycling apparel brand or cycling brand globally to become a blue sun system partner, which is, you know, I thought was quite shocking at the time because when you look at the outdoor space, it's a who's who of outdoor brands, Patagonia, Columbia, North Face, et cetera, all subscribe to this platform. But for us, I guess it was a way that we could get a sustainability coach or some support and leverage their framework and knowledge to help integrate that into our business. So, um ultimately what what that does is um yeah works on uh, restricted substance lists in raw materials so um it it looks at uh water management uh, the quality of the water that you're using for dyeing and processing um and we thought of look you know if we can if we can work with blue sign accredited fabric mills and blue sign accredited um manufacturers we're already setting a really high bar for, for what we're doing at that point, you know, so that was something that we really jumped onto and we've learned a lot through that process. But look, you know, we've adopted, um, recycled, um, yarns through, uh, quite a lot of our materials, um, which is also important, I think, but you know, no one's ever perfect. I think we're still on a, on a long journey, um, to, to get to where we need to be. You know, ideally we can sort of end up at a net positive, um, position but there's going to be a lot of work to do it it's just a constant um a constant moving beast that we really need to commit to and something that you know as, as i said it's always been a, fa- a part of the brand um but it's, it's never like we feel like we've achieved what we need to in that sense so jared 
if you were to think back um, to the beginning days, you, you did sound like you were very confident that it would work out. But uh, is do you ever did you ever think you'd be where you are today with with Map and where the business is? Yeah, yeah, totally. Indeed. Like it's um, <laughs> it's like, it doesn't feel like someone congratulates you or someone says, "Oh, that's amazing! You've got your own Map. You started Map." We go, yeah, it just feels like. Like ten years feels like I don't know. It's like part of the journey, part of my life. It's like one of my kids growing up. Yeah, it doesn't feel like. Yeah, did you expect your kid to be eighteen? Yeah, like yeah, yeah. It was going to happen. Like I feel like. Yeah, it doesn't feel like little things like blow my mind. Like we went into Harrods, so things like that. I was like, wow, like Harrods came to us Mm. and wanted to stock Mac. Like that to me is like I didn't expect that. I would yeah. I would love that to have happened. It was like a dream, but like to be able to say, um, yeah, that actually happened. Like, and then Mr. Porter and Essence, they sort of started coming out of the woodworks to put map into that onto those platforms or into those stores. So to me, that's probably was a surprise. But as far as like the growth of the business and taking on investment, it was all sort of future once you're sort of in it you just feel it growing like you probably felt it too like with building your previous business and you're sort of just in it Mm. and then when you get maybe there's an exit or maybe there's a point in time where you go look and you have to start another one you'd be like oh yeah this is that was a beast like Mm. we're in we're in an actual quite a big um business but i do remember a couple of years ago we walked through looking for our space that we're in now, our new um, head office in Melbourne, and we're looking at some other businesses and places that were up for, for lease. And there was this one space in Cremorne and it was a sportswear brand and they were moving out and it had 100 staff. And I was walking through it with Oli going, oh, God, I don't know if I want 100 staff, man. This feels like, it felt like a massive, like, you know, in your mind thinking, oh, I'm going to have to look after 100 people. I think we were probably at 20 at the time. and then. To look back at that now, I was saying to just Ollie yesterday, I think we're at 70 staff, you know, it could get to 100 pretty quickly, but it doesn't feel like a strain whatsoever. Like I feel quite confident we could have 200 staff. Like it's, I think once you're in the business, you grow with the business yourself. So each step of the way, I've definitely grown myself in my skill set of running a company, as has Ollie, and learning about how to run a company. So, yeah, it doesn't feel – it feels like we're in the right place at the right time and I'm really excited to, because next year's 10-year anniversary and I feel like we've done what we needed to do in these 10 years but now I'm really focused on what's the next 10 mm. and it's another big leap for us and um, I'll be really keen to see how that plays out. <laughs> Ollie, have you had any pinch-me moments that you can recall? Yeah, I think um... – it's the pinch me moments moments that get you. It's probably not because you, you, you're you're on this uh, journey every day, you know. So it's it's sort of become as jazz. It becomes part of your, um, you know, the fabric of your world essentially. But it's probably those moments where you know I think we went to London to look for the you know a retail location. Um, might have been in in you know last year, and uh, we got there at like five in the morning, and we're like you know pretty sort of jazzed up on coffee, and we're walking around, nothing's open. We're in the central London and we're like, oh, let's just go and look at all the shops now. You know, it's like all the, the ones we had on our list. 
And then uh, no one on the streets and then one guy rides past and he's had to tell him map, you know, and we've just sort of landed. And it's it's those things that remind you, I think, that, oh, wow, that is kind of cool, you know, what we've built. We've just flown out, you know, over the other, other side of the world and just run into someone that's sort of supporting our brand and, and out there, you know, enjoying the sport. So that I think it's probably those kind of moments, which it, it, there's been hundreds of them over over the years that, that kind of um, are quite special, I think. Yeah. But they're they're little ones though, aren't they? They're not the big ones. Little ones. It's not the big ones. Yeah. No. Yeah. It's it's, it's probably the it's probably the ones that take you a bit by surprise. There you have it. Another overnight success built over ten years just by two regular guys who followed their gut, their passion, and only started with a pair of cycling socks and an Instagram account. They grew it responsibly and are now taking on the cycling world with some of the best apparel money can buy. Like many of these stories we've heard, it shows that you don't need millions of dollars and everything else to be perfect in order to get started. Consistency, time, hard work, and capitalizing on a little bit of luck along the way is exactly what Jared and Ollie did, and anyone else can do too. I'm Wade Wallace, and you're listening to Overnight Success, a podcast from escapecollective.com. See you next time.